I believe that every one of you in this room yearns, even if it's something deep inside, almost inaudible at this point, I believe every one of you in this room yearns to have a brave leader stand before you and call you to something great, to push you forward, to say you may feel like the world is crashing in, it's going to swallow you up. You may feel like today is the day you're going to fall, but it is not this day. To have a bold leader stand before you and call you from the depths of discouragement, from the depths of fear, from the depths of monotony and boredom. I believe that every one of you in this room longs to be free from an existence that can so oftentimes be busy and trite and consumeristic and trivial. I believe that every one of you wants to be caught up into a vision like that for something big, something great, something hard, something glorious. I believe that all of us seek a call on our lives that would compel us, that would move us, move us to struggle, move us to fight, move us into battle, that would move us to give, that would move us to even lay down our lives if necessary to see it happen. I believe our lives are not worth living unless we are living for something for which we would be willing to die. Surprisingly, I think it's Jesus who issues just such a call to us. Matthew 10, 24 to 31. Hear the words of Christ. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Pray with me. Father, your word says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Father, now we have no other offering, no other protection but to run to you, to run to the strong tower. And so as we open your word, that's what we do. We ask that you would open hearts and minds and satisfy us in the morning with a bold vision of who you are and what you would call us to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you, when you see a clip like that from the Lord of the Rings, when you see Aragorn calling 
uh, the troops into battle, calling them to storm the gates of Mordor. I wonder how many of you think, oh, that's kind of like Jesus. I wonder how many of you think that, you know, Jesus does something similar to that. I doubt we ever really think of Jesus in quite those stark of terms. But isn't this exactly what Jesus is doing here? Isn't exactly what he's doing? He's preparing the troops for battle. Look at chapter 10. Look at the context. Verses 1 to 4, what does he do? He calls 12 men to be his disciples. He says, you, 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 you're all going to come and follow me. Verses 5 to 15, he says, now I have a mission for you. I'm sending you out. Sending you out to announce the kingdom, to proclaim that the king has come. And then verse 16, he starts to tell the troops what the battle is going to be like. What does he say in verse 16? Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. It's not going to be an easy battle. It's not going to be a battle that's comfortable and safe and without risk because wolves eat sheep. So it won't be a safe battle as as battles and wars are not. It won't be the kind of battle we think of. It won't be the kind of war that we know. It won't be a war for killing. It'll be a war for dying it won't be a battle for conquering it'll be a battle for liberating the world from the bondage it won't be a battle for stealing the resources of others but a battle for spending our resources for others it won't be a battle to make a name for ourselves but one to make a name for christ and his glory in the world it is a radical call a radical call to battle. In our passage, Jesus is going to tell us what is that going to be like? What would it be like if we listened, if we heard this call to follow him? Verse 24 and 25. I just read it. He says, The disciple is not above his teacher and servant above his master. It's enough that the disciple be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, in other words, if they have called Jesus himself Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? How much more will they malign you and me? What Jesus is saying here is that if we're his disciples, we don't rise above him, we will be like him. If we're his servants, we will be like the master. What was it like? For Jesus. You know, so often we don't want to picture Jesus like Aragorn there. We don't want to picture him doing what Jesus, uh, what Aragorn did. We don't want to picture him calling us in to battle. I think we try to domesticate Jesus. We try to tame him. We try to fit him into this little box, this little formula that we have. We try to make Christianity into all about being Christianity means is, you know, having the good life and, and being a nice person and being comfortable and safe and secure. What was Jesus' life like? Jesus says we're going to be, have a life like his if we follow him. What was his life like? When did Jesus, let me ask, when did Jesus have a good life as we would define it? Parents in the room, how many of you say, I would love to see my kids grow up and have the life that Jesus had? What kind of life did he have? He had no home. He traveled far away from his family. He didn't have a 401k or an IRA or health insurance. Didn't have a nice car. He didn't have money. He didn't have a lot of status, at least at the time. And he ended up dying on a cross. We try to domesticate Christianity into, you know, it means that we really need to be good, nice people. 
Let me ask you this. When was, Je- when was Jesus nice? Would you describe Jesus as nice? I would describe Jesus as all kinds of things. I would describe him as, as profound and, and deep and joyful and loving and, and uh, interesting and smart and confrontational. I wouldn't say nice. I mean, is Jesus, nice just means, you know, I'm friendly to all people in all circumstances. Jesus came to preach the truth. He didn't really have time for nice. Look at the way he blows through the gospels. Sure, he is the same man who rocked babies on his lap, who had compassion on the sick, who healed the blind, who cared for the poor, who fed the hungry. But he's also the Jesus who meticulously made a cord of whips and drove the money changers out of the temple. He's also the Jesus who confronted the Pharisees and says, you are a brood of vipers. The same Jesus who said, yes, you make the outside of the cup look nice and clean, like a nice person, but inside you're filthy and nasty and dirty. The same Jesus who, when asked for a sign of his Messiahship, said, only a wicked and evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Is Jesus nice? You can look, look through the scriptures. Nice, the word nice is never used even once in all of scripture. Jesus is loving, he is kind, he is tender, but he is bold. I wouldn't describe it as nice, but we want to domesticate Christianity. We want to tame Jesus as it were. We're going to make it comfortable and safe and without risk. But when was Jesus comfortable? When was he safe? When was he without risk? Jesus is the one that said, look, foxes have holes. Even birds have nests to live in, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had no home. He had no money. He was a man who the legitimacy of his birth was questioned from the day he was born until the day he died. He was hounded by the authorities. He was constantly getting himself into trouble. He was constantly saying crazy things. He was constantly causing a stir, causing a riot, confronting people, penetrating into their heart. He was rarely comfortable, rarely safe, rarely living the risk-free existence that I think so often we want to put on him, we want to domesticate him with. And Jesus says, if you follow me, if you really hear this call to battle, it won't be a safe call. It won't be without risk. It won't be all for comfort. It will be for joy. It's amazing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus had greater joy in the cross than we have in the greatest moments of our life. The question is, do you hear the call of Christ. You know, we work hard to isolate ourselves from risk, don't we? We work hard to isolate ourselves from discomfort, from losing our safety. And then we assume that it's really Jesus' role to kind of go along with us and do that too. That's Jesus' role to keep us comfortable and safe and without risk and living the nice, good life. I think so often we've convinced ourselves that, that Christianity and the call of Christ is, is equal, it's the same as the American dream. The call of Christianity is that, you know, I can live a nice, easy, helpful, uh, pain-free existence, retire wealthy and play golf and travel. That, that's, the, that's not the goal of Christianity. Jesus says, I won't be domesticated that way. I won't be tamed into such a small goal. I won't be made to fit into the package. I won't be made to fit into your culture's formula for me. I'm doing something much 
bigger than that. Jesus says, I'm doing something much bigger. I won't be the lackey for a cause. I won't be the lackey for an organization. I'm bigger than a, than a political party. I'm bigger than Republicans and Democrats in the United States. I'm doing something big and vast, something bigger than the American dream, something more exciting, something more adventurous, something more bold and risky. And so we can't domesticate Jesus. We can't tame Jesus. Jesus says, you can't tame me, but you can trust me. You can't tame me, but you can trust me. Teenagers, let's talk, take a minute to talk to you. Most of you will be in the second service, but there's a few of you here. And I would just say to you that as you are getting older, as you're getting ready to go to college or go into the workplace, you will see that this idea will be sold to you again and again. And I would say to you, don't buy it. It's a false bill of goods. Listen, I'm 29 years old, so I'm 10 to 15 years older than most of you teenagers in the congregation. And I can look back on points over the last 10 to 15 years, and I can just see moments in my life that were wasted, wasted, because I wanted to be safe or risk-free or not bold, not take up the challenge. So many of you, you'll come back in 10 or 15 years, and what will you be like? Some of you will be wildly successful already in your careers, and some of you won't be. Some of you will have made a lot of money, and some of you won't have. Some of you will have a great family started, and some of you won't. I don't really, I, I'm not really concerned with those things. What I'm wondering is how many of you, those are all good. They, they can be great things. I'm not arguing for or against them, but I'm saying how many of you will be doing the bold things for Christ? How many of you will be laying down your lives and risking to see the glory of Christ spread in the world? How many of you will be taking up the challenge and following Christ into battle? How many of you will be able to look back and say, over the last 10 years, I have not wasted it? We need young people who are radical for Christ, who are saying, I'm not gonna waste my life. And sure, sometimes your passion exceeds your knowledge, but we need you to feel that. We need people, young teenagers who are willing to do crazy things for Jesus, who are willing to big dream, dream big dreams for Christ. And I would ask you, aren't you tired of the way your culture looks at you? I hope that you're sick and tired of your culture having low expectations for you. I hope you're sick and tired of your culture looking at you as teenagers and saying, they're just teenagers. They're going to be crazy. They're going to be irresponsible. They're going to be dumb. I hope you're sick and tired of looking at having your culture look at you and selling you short. Because Christ doesn't sell you short. He calls you to battle. He calls you to follow him. Don't you hear the call of something greater? Maybe it's just a whisper. Maybe it's down deep inside, but don't you hear the call to greatness that Jesus offers? So for all of us, have we domesticated Jesus? Are we trying to tame him? Are we risking? Are we following him? Are we being bold? Do you hear the call? Jesus says, I won't be tamed, but I can be trusted. Do you hear my call? And of course, this kind of thing becomes scary. It can be. It can be fearful. 
Jesus recognizes that. He starts to address fear. He says, I know that my call on your life will bring fear. And so in verses 26 to 31, he says three times the most often used command in scripture, which is what? Do not fear. Do not fear. And he's going to, be, going to begin to go through and tell you why you don't have to and why you can follow him into battle. But I would ask you this first. Notice that Jesus, in, in saying do not fear three times, he's assuming fear. He's assuming that his call on your life and the way that intersects with you is going to create, at least initially, fear. It's going to create queasiness, uneasiness, discomfort. He's just assuming it. So I'd ask you, what are you doing right now in obedience to Christ that is fearful, that, that causes you uneasiness or queasiness? You know, queasiness for Christ could be our new slogan. I would say if, you, if you're doing nothing in your life in obedience for Christ that causes you to tremble, that causes you uneasiness, that causes you some measure of fear, then you're not following the call that he has issued to you. You're not going boldly into battle with him. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus calls you to a life of fear. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Do not fear. But what I'm saying, what he is saying is that you ought to be doing things that would initially, in your human person, elicit fear. But when you come to rely on me, that, that event, that moment will make you rely on me like you never have before. And trust me, like you never have before, and see me eradicate your fear. You'll see me as all-sufficient and all-glorious, able to eradicate your fear. And so we don't know what he's going to ask. We don't know what Jesus is going to ask us to do, what he's going to call us to do. But we can be certain, and there's a certain glory in that, isn't that we don't know, that he calls us into boldness and to risk. So we don't know what he's going to ask. And the reason is, we can, is because we can't tame him. Jesus says, you can't tame me, but you can trust me. You hear his call? What's he calling you to do? What does he say about fear in 26 and 27? He says, have no fear of them. Them are the, those that would persecute you or make fun of you for believing in Christ or speaking for him. Have no fear of them. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus makes a call here to truth. There's a fearfulness about speaking the truth, isn't it? What will they think of me? What will my neighbors say? What will my professor say? What will uh, my friends and family say if I speak for him? But Jesus says, whatever you've heard me say in the dark, say it in the light. Whatever I've said to you in secret, shout it out from the housetops. Don't let the fear stop you from speaking in that way. And why? Why not? The reason, he says, is that nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, everything now that seems like ludicrousness to our culture, everything now that seems like it's a weird, strange, anomaly belief to people will be written in the skies of eternity. And alongside of that will be the, the acts of courage for those that had the courage to speak for Christ in the culture. It's not just today that Christianity speaks things that seem strange or out of place in culture. 
It's been going on for since, since Christ was around, for years and years. I love the story of Andrew Melville. He's, uh, he was a Scottish reformer. He lived in Scotland after, right after John Knox died, late, late 1500s, early 1600s. And he stood against King James VI. King James said, the church and all Christians, I am the king of the church. I am the head of the church. And Andrew said, absolutely not. Jesus is the king of the church. And he called him Andrew before him. You got to remember, at this day, when you speak to a king, the king can kill you like this. It's not like today, you know, we can say anything we want to about George Bush and nobody's going to come beat our door down. Nobody's going to say anything to us, really. And in fact, that kind of dissent is encouraged in our country. But that day, you did not talk against the monarch. But he came to see King James, and, and uh, James said, you must bow to me, and the church must bow to me. And this is what Melville said. I think the quote's on the screen. He says, sir, you are God's silly vassal. In other words, you're God's subject. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There's King James, the head of the commonwealth. And there's Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James the sixth is and of whose kingdom he is not a king, and not a lord, and not a head, but a member. And James said, I'll have you hanged and exiled. And Andrew said, you cannot hang or exile the truth. I just, yes. Boldness in the face of death. Boldness for the truth in the face of death. Such is the confidence of those who hear the call of Christ and follow him into battle. I don't know who God's going to call you to stand before. I don't know who God's going to call you to speak the truth to. Whether he calls you to stand before a king or to stand before your kin. You will know that he cannot be tamed, but he can be trusted. He can be trusted in the moments of fear. Listen, I know for... You're saying, well, gosh, he's calling us to do, he's calling everybody in the congregation to sell everything we have and move to Iran and, you know, become a martyr for the gospel. It's not really what I'm saying. Some of you, maybe that's true, but that's not really what I'm saying. For some of you, the most fearful thing you could imagine to do for Christ might be to join a small group. For some of you, the most fearful thing to do for Christ that you could possibly imagine would be to come down front and and pray with the prayer team after the service. For some of you, the most fearful thing to do might be to announce or to share with a group of people an issue or a struggle or a sin that you're having and ask for help and ask for accountability. For some of you, it might be to go to your next door neighbor and invite them to dinner to tell them about Christ. I, I don't know, but we need to be pursuing Christ at the place where we're afraid because those are the places we're gonna see him demonstrate his, his glory, demonstrate his all sufficiency in that way and dispel our fear all right a second fear jesus moves on here 26 and 27 we talked about the first one then he gets to 28 and you know i really expect jesus to say something very comforting here it's to me this is the time now to reassure me as i'm listening to jesus because he said look you're not going to be comfortable it's not going to be easy you're going to have to risk so now i expect him to say and if you do that Everything will go well for you in life. And if you do that, you will always be healthy and you will always succeed in every endeavor you undertake in my name. And you will always have plenty of money and you will always be uh, 
cheerful and joyful and, and chipper and healthy. What does Jesus say? Almost like the exact opposite. Jesus says in 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot fill, kill the soul. Rather, fill, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is Jesus saying there? You know, we say, don't do that, that's dangerous. You could, you know, you could even die if you did that. Jesus says, the worst that could happen is they could kill you. That's the very worst thing. So what do you have to worry about? Don't fear the one who can only kill the body. That's all they can do. It's Jesus' words of comfort and assurance to you. But that's also why I love Jesus because he's so radically out of step with anything anybody in our culture would ever say. Don't fear them. All they can do is kill you. That's the worst that can happen. All they can do is take your body and, by the way, I'll give you a new one one day. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, don't fear him, but fear the one that is God who can kill soul and body in hell. In other words, any penalty that man can do to you, the worst that he can do is to kill your body and expedite your journey to heaven. So don't fear that above denying your faith, above walking away for Christ, from Christ, which would lead to a much more severe penalty of killing the body and the soul in hell. Jesus says, yes, life with me will cost, but life without me will cost much more dearly. So he makes this radical statement. You know, verse 28, is, it's kind of been the centerpiece of my meditation throughout most of the week because I've been trying to think, how do you feel that? How do you know that? How do you experience, don't fear them that can kill the body? How do you experience, how do you, and I, I've just been praying, God, I don't even know how to get my mind around that, but, but do that to me. Make that happen in my heart. Make that happen in my life. Make that verse, verse 28, a reality for me. I mean, I can barely speak a word of Christ to my neighbor without fear, much less having a gun to my head for my faith. So my prayer is, do verse 28 to us. How do we get that? How do we get that in us? Well, I think what we notice is that fear goes hand in hand with our values, with what we value the most, right? Why do you fear a thief? You fear a thief because he threatens what you value. You, th- you value your home. You value your possessions. You value your life and your lives of your family, and rightly so. Why do you fear the tumbling of the stock market right now? Because you value your money and your retirement accounts and your security in retirement, and rightly so. We fear, we start to fear whenever what we value the most is threatened. And so Jesus says, what you need is an utter revolution of values. What would it be like if your own life was down here on the value list? What would that take? It would create a changed mind. It would create a radical call of Christ into battle. A changed mindset means that we no longer, we no longer can hold on to a peacetime mindset. We have to develop a wartime mindset because there is a battle going on. Christ is calling us to this battle. You have to develop a wartime mindset. What's that look like? Well, there's probably, I don't know, five or six of you in the room that were alive in World War II and 
who experienced a country developing a, a, a World War II mindset. This is what Dr. Ralph Winter says about what happened there in World War II. I think the quote's on the screen. The whole country seemed overnight to have snapped out of its Depression-era lethargy. Everyone scrambled to be of help. Rubber was needed for the war effort and gasoline and metal. A women's basketball game at Northwestern University was stopped so that the referee and all 10 players could scour the floor for a lost bobby pin. Americans pitched in to support strict rationing programs, and their boys turned out as volunteers in various collection drives. Soon, butter and milk were restricted with canned goods and meat. Shoes became scarce, and paper and milk and silk, too. People grew victory gardens and drove at the gas-saving victory speed of 35 miles an hour. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without became a popular slogan. America sacrificed. I would submit, and I know of no great achievement, no great accomplishment, whether personal or worldwide in scope, that did not involve great cost, that not, not involve great risk, great sacrifice. I went to D.C. recently, stood before the new World War II Memorial, and it is, it's a breathtaking sight, if you, especially if you love history as I do. And you stand there, at, at the back of it is a, a granite wall, black granite wall, full of over 4,000 Star, gold stars, each star representing a hundred uh, lost American lives. And there, engraved in the granite in front, says this Here we mark the price of freedom. Where are we marking the price of freedom? Obviously, it's marked at the cross. Where are we marking the Christ? The price of freedom. No great achievement will be won without great sacrifice. In war, our priorities are different than they are in peace. We turn our minds around that. And what happens is when you're at peace, you ask questions about your life like, um, well, what's, what's wrong with doing this? What's wrong with acting in this way? What's wrong with spending our money this way? What's wrong with buying this and doing that? But when you're at war, you say, Will this action, will this, will this expenditure, will this thing achieve our goal of spreading the glory of Christ? The question gets switched. You begin to ask a better question about your life. So the question is, do you hear the call? Do you hear Christ calling you to battle? Do you hear him saying, fear not the man who can only kill the body? One of my heroes is a man named John G. Patton. He was a man I believe understood, verse 28. He was a missionary in the 1800s to some islands called the New Hebrides. And we know it now, and some of you are Survivor fans maybe, and uh, they did a season there called Vanuatu. That's what the, that was called New Hebrides when he was around. He became a missionary there. And at the time, nobody had ever gone there with the gospel. No one had ever preached there. And in fact, the people there were fierce cannibals. And anyone that dared upon their shore, unless they came with an army, were eaten by the cannibals. But yet John Patton was not deterred from going there. And in fact, this is what he wrote in his autobiography. He says, with regard to my life among the cannibals... As I had only once to die, I was content to leave the time and place and means in the hand of God. I sought to serve and honor the Lord, whether in life or by death. 
Many tried to prevent him from going. Many people tried to keep him from going on this mission. One man was an older man, an older church man in his congregation. His name was Mr. Uh, Dickinson. And he kept saying, John, John, the cannibals, the cannibals. You, if you go there, the cannibals will eat you. He listened to him for a while. And then this is what he said. I love this. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And I wrote beside that in the, in the margin of my, uh, of my book, I wrote beside that, where are the men today who say such things? I wrote it as an indictment of myself and maybe of the church as a whole, but where are the men today, where are the women today who are not afraid of the cannibals? Because they can only kill the body, but not the soul. Where are the men and the women today who are dreaming big dreams for Christ? Where are the men and the women today who are dreaming dreams like, you know, there's over 6,000 unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel, dreaming dreams about reaching them? Where are men and women dreaming dreams about eradicating AIDS in Africa and hunger for the name of Christ in the world? Where are people dreaming dreams of ministering to their next door neighbor, starting a Bible study on their block. I don't, I don't know. There's a million dreams that can be dreamed. There's a million battles to be fought. Which one is Christ calling you to? Which one are you going to dare to go into, to risk it, to, be, to, to, to wade through the fear, to get to? And this is for all of us. All of us have a place to play. All of us have somewhere in the battle. Teenagers, I talked to you earlier. Listen, this is a time in your life you're stronger now. You're probably, your mind is sharper now. You're more free than you ever will be again. How will you use this time? What dreams are you dreaming? Those of you who are single or divorced, you're not tied down by the restrictions of family the way others are. What, what dreams are you dreaming right now to do with your time for the battle of Christ in the world? Some of you are older, you're getting on up in age, you're in your twilight years, and you're wondering, what use could I be now? You're dreaming dreams about being the sage of the congregation, about being the go-to man or the go-to woman for other young men and women in a congregation who need advice and wisdom and training. Some of you are baby boomers, and you know you're... Maybe your kids are moving out. You have more time and more money than you ever had before. What are you going to do? How are you going to risk that time and that money for the cause of Christ? Baby boomers are in the midst of the largest transfer of wealth in the history of civilization. There's enough wealth in the, in just in the evangelical church in America to eradicate poverty, to eradicate hunger, and to, and to bring the gospel to every unknown, unknown uh, unreached people group in the world. What about young parents? A lot of us, that's where I am in my stage. What about young parents? We don't, 
Most of us, if we're in our stage, young kids, we don't have a lot of time, a lot of money maybe. What we do have is young hearts and minds before us, our children. What are we doing to train them in verse 28? And you need to know that's a serious training. I thought this week, what what would I do if my son grew up 21 years old and said, Dad, I've decided that Christ is calling me to go to Sudan. What would I do if he said, I've decided Christ is calling me to go to Darfur and, and be with and minister to the thousands and thousands of Christians who are being killed by Muslims on a daily basis? What would I say? Would I be proud? Would I be terrified? Are we willing to train even our children for that? Even in the name of love and protection, we have to know that Jesus cannot be tamed, but he can be trusted. And many of us won't be called to give our lives or become martyrs for the sake of Christ. That is true, but it's not a dead issue. You know that 171,000 people, Christian martyrs, died last year alone. And in the history of the world, in the, since, since Jesus, there's been over 70 million Christian martyrs. And we, you and I need to look at that number. And we have to ask ourselves, in that number, is God real? When he asked 171,000 people last year to die for his name, is he real? Can he be trusted? And that's exactly the last point Jesus is going to make, 29 to 30. Verses 29 to 30, what does he say? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The argument goes like this. Sparrows are the cheapest bird you can buy. They sell two for a penny. They're worthless. Look, a bird watcher doesn't stop to look at sparrows. They're too common. They're absolutely worthless. But God says this. Not a single one of those worthless sparrows will fall to the ground without his will. That is how intricately he controls and directs the universe. And he says to you, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so how can you fall unless it is the will of your father? And that's what he's called in verse 29, our father. You know we can trust him. He is our father. Verse 30, he goes further because he is not only he's our father, but he knows us intimately. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Now I'm 29 right now. You, you know, About age 25, I started losing my hair. And so it's not a pretty thing. God doesn't have a lot of work to do with counting the hairs on my head. But I know this. Not one of them fell without his will. And not a single thing can come to your life without his will. 
But do you hear the call? Are you going to domesticate him? Are you going to try to tame him? Are you going to hear the call to battle? And know that you can go out and be bold and unsafe and risky. And you can risk your reputation. And you can risk your money. And you can risk your comfort and your ease. And you can risk even your life if necessary. Because he can't be tamed. But he can be trusted. Do you hear the call? Do you hear his call? Let's pray.